There in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 20, let us now hear the word of the living God. And they watched him and sent forth spies which should feign themselves just men that they might take hold of his words, that so they might deliver him under the power and authority of the governor. And they asked him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teacheth the way of God truly. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? But Jesus perceived their craftiness and said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Show me a penny. Whose image and superscription hath it? And they answered and said, Caesar's. Jesus said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. And they could not take hold of his words, Before the people, and they marveled at his answer and held their peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we do come before thee this day and plead for thy mercies as we hear thy word preached. Come with great power, come through the work of thy Spirit. And pour out thy spirit upon this servant as I proclaim thy word. And may I open my mouth and proclaim glorious truths from thy law. May we open our ears and our hearts to receive those truths. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we come to the final section of the Gospel of Luke. There's been many controversies within the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, but those controversies continue to increase. Jesus has agitated the people. Agitated them to the point of wanting to kill him. But Jesus mostly agitated the religious leaders. And as a religious leader, I say that sometimes it is good and right to agitate religious leaders. And Jesus did. He did it well. He is a wanted man. He is a criminal in the eyes of these religious leaders. Soon as he comes into the city of Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, being declared by the crowds as the king of kings, controversy begins to increase. Jesus goes into the temple and speaks openly against the scribes and Pharisees. He does not speak openly against the law of God. He does not speak openly against 
rightful worship against rightful religion. There is true religion and there is false religion. There is true worship and false worship. And Jesus does not speak against what is right and lawful. But as he comes into the city and as he comes into the temple, he begins to utter warnings. He has uttered warnings through the use of these parables that we have seen, particularly in chapter 19 and 20, Jesus issues warnings to the religious leaders. And now we see Jesus coming here before the scribes and Pharisees again, as he has just applied that parable that we saw last week of the wicked husbandman. He begins to apply that parable, and then he speaks directly to them. And immediately, these religious scribes and chief priests and elders seek to lay hands upon him that they might arrest him and charge him for crimes, high crimes and misdemeanors against their law and against Israel. But notice here, and we will see this in the next few weeks, there are three trick questions that they ask of Jesus. And we see that here in our passage this morning. But I want us to see as we, we approach this passage, the witnesses of the wisdom of Jesus. We are witnesses as we read the scriptures of the wisdom of Christ. These religious leaders these scribes, these elders of Israel are witnesses of the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see a series of three questions, trick questions that Jesus is asked. First one today deals with a question regarding uh, the civil magistrate. Next week... It will be a theological discussion. But here as we see and as you follow the outline that's been provided for those who are following the outline, we see first of all the trickery of the questions that are posed to Jesus. I love this passage of scripture. I, I just find so much hidden in this passage for our instruction. But note here. The trickery of the questions. That are presented to Jesus. If you look back in verse 19. Going back to last week. Jesus says to them. That there will be a stone. That will arise within Israel. That will be rejected. And that stone will become the cornerstone. And those who fall upon that stone will be broken. And those on whom that stone falls will be crushed as powder. And there in verse 18 he speaks of grace and of judgment. Then the chief priests and the scribes are beyond agitation. I don't know what English word you could come up with to describe the, the agitation of these chief priests and scribes at this point. 
At some hour they sought to lay hands on Jesus. And guess what? They feared the people. Why do they fear the people? Because Jesus is standing in the outer court of that temple there in Jerusalem as they're preparing for Passover. And he's standing there and all the crowds are gathered around. And they feared that if they arrested him at that point, they would soon face the crowd. But God in his amazing providence had that right appointed time for Jesus to be arrested. And it wasn't today and it wasn't tomorrow. But we find that they seek to lay hands upon him. But then, verse 20, they have already sensed that Jesus was speaking directly to them in this past week's parable. And now they watch him. Notice verse 20. There is, there's some beautiful things here in verse 20 that I think are helpful for us to understand. They watched him. Now, they're not just like what I typically do when I go in a crowd. If I'm sitting in an airport waiting for a flight or if I'm sitting somewhere and I've got time and I'm waiting for whatever I'm waiting for, I just love to people watch. Just watch what people are doing. But they're not watching Jesus just as the ordinary person in a crowd. They are watching him with intent to bring charge against him. They are looking for a way to trap him. And you find that here in this section. That these religious leaders of Israel have no desire for the things of God. They're false leaders. They're false servants. They're false shepherds. They want to trick Jesus. But always, always be on guard against flattery. Always be on guard against flattery, whether it comes from your enemies, or even whether it comes from your friends or those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. This trickery that they use to pose these questions show that they were not sincere, but they were evil and desired only to bring Jesus down. So they posed the question to Jesus that we find here in this passage. And notice there, as they are watching him, verse 20 says, they sent forth spies. Now, Israel had spies sent out in the Old Testament to spy out the land. And now the religious leaders, the elders of Israel, send out spies to watch Jesus. And verse 20 says that they sent out spies which should feign themselves as just men. They regarded themselves... That's what the phrase there, feign themselves. They regarded themselves as righteous. They regarded themselves as just men. And yet, they sent forth spies 
that they might take hold of his words. Now, as they took hold of his words, they followed every word. They listened at every word he said. And they were looking for some way to bring charge against him. That's what the text says. So that they might deliver him unto the power of and authority of the governor. Now, I want you to notice there at the end of verse 20, it's, it's, there's a lot of humor and irony in this passage because they look for an opportunity to deliver him to the Roman authorities. And so here, verse 20 tells us, and J.C. Ryle brings this out in his thoughts, that these spies that they sent to spy out Jesus are really liars in waiting. They're looking for a way to trap Jesus. And so, as the text continues, it says they watched him. They sent forth spies. And then as the passage continues, it says, and they asked Jesus, saying, Master, We know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, and neither accepteth thou the person of any, but teacheth the way of God truly. You know what that is? That is flattery. They no more regarded the words and the wisdom of Christ than any other teacher. But they looked for a way to trap him. They looked for a way to plot against Jesus. But notice in verse 21 the flattery of these religious leaders. They didn't regard anything that Jesus said. They sought not his words or his teaching, but they sought to demean him, to bring him down. And here they use every form of scheme and trickery and conniving to bring Jesus down. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians of the schemes and devices of Satan. And that word that Paul uses there for schemes is very similar to the word that's used here. Because the craftiness and the scheming and the trickery of these elders and religious leaders is the same type of scheming that is used by their father, Satan. Remember there in the Gospel of John, Jesus says to the scribes and religious leaders, he says, you're just like your father, the devil. They learned trickery and scheming from their father, Satan. They were not children of God. They were not servants of God. They were not shepherds of Israel. In fact, in the Old Testament, it warned against false shepherds. But here's a plot, and the plot thickens as they seek to trap Jesus. I love what the Puritan John Trapp says. Here is a fair glove drawn upon a foul hand. 
they will smile in your face and at the same time cut your throat. And that's the thought here. That they had no regard for what Jesus had to say. They just wanted him out. They wanted to literally remove him from the scene. He was causing more trouble than they could experience. And so we find here, again, in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the prophecy fulfilled from Isaiah chapter 53. Here is a man of sorrow, one rejected of men and despised. And they despised him. Isn't it ironic that these were the scribes who knew the law? These were the scribes that knew every detail of the law of the Old Testament. And yet they missed that prophecy that says that the Son of Man would come and be despised and rejected of men. And here as he comes claims to be the Messiah, and they have already questioned his authority. By what authority do you do these things? And he's told them. He's, he's taught them through parables and, and teaching, and they, they still reject it. But they did not see from, their, from the Old Testament that this Christ was a man of sorrow, one who was rejected of men. And so we see the, the cunningness and the craftiness of their questions. Oh, how easy it is for us to fall into the traps and schemes of Satan. But notice here, the Lord Jesus Christ never gave in to their schemes. He never gave in to their trickery. He never gave in to their schemes and their traps. But Jesus dealt with them directly. And so we find here, first of all, the trickery of these questions. But we learn in this that the Lord's enemies will always regard themselves as righteous and holy and yet will always turn against him. And so they use the flattery to get to the point of what they want to ask. But there's wonderful wisdom that we learn in this passage of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see the wisdom in his response. When someone says something ugly or hateful to us, what is our first response? To respond in an ugly an unwise way. But here we find the master. We find the Lord Jesus responding in wisdom. In a way like no man has ever responded. And notice how he responds. When they first challenged his authority. When he came into the temple. By what authority do you do these things? He says well let me ask you by what authority did John the Baptist do what he did? They wouldn't answer him. And Jesus says, I won't answer you. And so there are times when Jesus would, would refuse to answer them. 
But there were times that Jesus always responded with a question. This is a great method of evangelism. This is a great method of opposing the enemies of God. Ask a question. And with a question, Jesus asked them the question. Master, verse 23, is totally aware of their flattery and deceit. They ask the question, is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? You see the sarcasm in that? Do you see the flattery? Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar? My response would be, are you kidding? They have no regard for what's lawful or right. But as they ask that question, Jesus doesn't immediately respond. But verse 23 says he perceives their craftiness and says unto them, Why do you tempt me? Now we find the parallel accounts to this which are very similar in Matthew 22 verses 15 through 22 and Mark 12 verses 13 through 17. And they say almost the same thing. Why do you tempt me? The word made flesh, John says, came and dwelt among us. He is called the word made flesh. He is the logos. He is the wisdom or the mind of God. And he knew the mind and the heart of these men. Because Jesus knows the mind and the heart of all men. I draw your attention back to Luke chapter 6 by way of review, but also to remind us that here in Luke chapter 6 and verse 8, it says, Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto the man which had the withered hand, Rise up, stand forth in the midst. And he arose and stood forth. They began to question Jesus' authority to heal on the Sabbath day. And here Jesus perceives their thoughts. It's the same idea. We find there in Luke chapter 16. Again, we see the same idea. Luke chapter 16 and verse 15. And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men. But God knoweth your hearts. And there in John chapter 2 and verse 25. John chapter 2 and verse 25. We see again the same thought of the same idea of Jesus perceiving their thoughts. John chapter 2 and verse 25. And needed not that any should testify of man. For he knew what was in the heart of man. Every vain thought. Every vain imagination of man. Every thought and imagination that you and I have is open to the one who knows all things, even the number of the stars in heaven. He is the God who is infinite in wisdom. 
He is the God who knows every thought before it comes into the heart of man. Proverbs 15.11 says, Hell and destruction are before the Lord. How much more than the hearts of the children of men? Jesus responded to them with the wisdom of God. Jesus did not return deceit with deceit. Jesus did not return flattery with flattery. Jesus didn't use any form of manipulation that we are so accustomed to using. He simply spoke in truth and righteousness. The scriptures say of him, Never a man spake like this man. He is perfectly righteous and does not respond in any sinful manner. G. Campbell Morgan, the British evangelist and pastor of Westminster Chapel in London and the successor of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, once said that these answers of his were not the short retorts of smartness, but the final utterances of a wisdom which revealed the ignorance of the questions. Contrary to what you may have always been taught, there are many foolish questions. Remember in school, the teacher would always say, oh, teacher, I have, no, I really can't ask. No, and ask your question because there's no, what? Dumb question. There's no stupid question. Well, yes, there is. These are dumb, stupid questions that these religious leaders ask of Jesus. But Jesus perceives that the people ask them foolishly. It may seem like on the surface that it's a legitimate question. Isn't it legitimate to ask? Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar? If I were to ask you, is it lawful for you to give tribute unto our government, would that not be a lawful and right question? And so it seems legitimate, but Jesus knows the motive behind that question. Jesus knows that in asking that, they have no regard for truth. We've seen the wisdom throughout the Gospel of Luke And here we see the wisdom of Jesus more fully at the end of his public ministry. We see the wisdom here. We will see it in these next two trick questions that are asked of him. But I find it amazing that here in this conflict with these religious leaders, Jesus shows Forth the perfect wisdom of God. But in that perfect wisdom that Jesus shows here, there's a truth that he wants to teach. He wants to teach this truth particularly to these religious leaders, these false leaders, but he wants that truth expressed 
to the crowds of people. And he wants us to understand that truth as well. Jesus does not ignore the question. Even if it is a foolish question posed from wrong motives. Here Jesus teaches us a simple truth that is often ignored or misunderstood, even by Christians. What is the relationship between the kingdom of God and earthly government? That is what is stated there in their question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Now, many um, commentators... And sadly, many pastors approach this passage and completely ignore the question. The question is just as important as the wisdom of Christ. The question is just as important as the arrogance and the folly and the foolishness of these religious leaders. Because... In asking that question, there in verse 24, as Jesus responds with a rebuke, why are you tempting me? He caught them immediately in their own scheme. Show me a penny. Whose image do you see on that penny or that denarii? A penny was worth a day's wage. They answered and said, Caesar... Jesus does not answer the question, but asks them whose image is on it. Here's a perfect design to teach them the truth. Whose image is on there? He wants them to admit that it's Caesar's image. This is not just a moment for conflict and confrontation, but it is an object lesson To teach them to teach us spiritual truth. Tiberius, the Caesar that was currently reigning as the emperor of Rome, had an image of his head upon that coin. And on the front of that coin, around his head, was the abbreviation for for Tiberius Caesar, his name, It simply had TC, and then it had the phrase, the divine Augustus. This refers to the first Roman emperor, Augustus. You know, the one who ordered the decree that all male children in the time of Christ's infancy be put to death under the age of two? That Augustus. And so that divine Augustus that was on the coin meant that that first emperor was regarded as divine. And so Augustus' name meant son of of a god or son of God. And so on that very coin that Jesus asked, whose image is on there? It had Tiberius Caesar the son of a God. On the back of the coin was the title Pontifex Maximus. 
meaning supreme high priest of the Roman Empire. Every emperor was called Pontifus Maximus, supreme priest of the Roman Empire. And this is the same title that was given to the popes of Rome. Whose image? Well, of course, Caesar. Jesus regards the civil authority of Caesar and says to them, you recognize his rightful authority every time you pay your taxes. Render, therefore, unto Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. These religious leaders, these Jews, lived under Roman law. And according to Roman law, every citizen paid three taxes. And we question our tax system today. It wasn't much different then. The coin or the penny was paid as a poll tax or a customs tax. Their taxes, as our taxes, covered military, covered public works and trade, it covered economy. And if Jesus answered their question by saying, no, you don't have to give that tribute to Caesar, he would have immediately brought into question his authority and question and his question, his character would have been questioned if he had said no well he is considered a god so you don't have to give any tribute to him he would have also confirmed for the the crowds of people and even for the disciples that his purpose in coming was to be an earthly king who would overthrow rome and if Jesus demand, said that they didn't have to give tribute to Caesar, then the Roman soldiers would have come in and arrested him because he was overthrowing the Roman government. But here in the question, Jesus establishes rightful authority and government under the sovereignty of God. And in verse 25, John Calvin makes this Wonderful series of points. Christ reminds these religious leaders that as the subjection of their nation was attested by a coin, there was no debate on the matter. Case closed. But Calvin goes on to say that there's a clear distinction that is made here between spiritual and civil government that Jesus teaches. Every man has a calling to submit to authority. Children, you have a duty and a calling to submit to your parents. Sadly, this is rejected in our culture, but wives are called to submit unto their husbands. Servants are called to submit to their masters. Citizens are called to submit to their civil government. And parishioners and believers are called to submit to the authority of the church. So what's the problem? 
problem is in the human heart. We have the same problem that the scribes and Pharisees have. Well, I'm not sure about this. Was, was, it, was the Roman government rightfully lawful? That's the question we ask. Is it right for us to pay taxes for the murder of the unborn? Is it right for us to pay taxes for, for all these needless and, and foolish studies that government sometimes seems to find necessary? But Calvin further says that those who destroy political authority and government are rebellious against God and that obedience to civil magistrates is always joined to the worship and fear of God. We as Americans need to understand that. I, as a patriot and as an American and as an Irishman, needs to understand that. That when we seek to destroy political or civil government, we are in disobedience to God. Let me give you a case in point in history. The Anabaptists were no friends of the Reformers. The Anabaptists rejected the duty that Christians had to the magistrate. And the Anabaptists clearly taught, and we see this particularly among the Mennonites and the Old Order Amish, that they did not have to pay their oaths and their tributes to those in authority, and they did have to involve themselves in military. And so even from the Anabaptists, we see this rejection of political authority, which is rebellion against God. Even among evangelicals, we have erroneously assumed that civil government is either a necessary evil or some have gone to the other extreme of saying that we need to establish libertarianism because libertarianism promotes the rights and freedoms of men. Now let me say that there is a sense in which we are libertarian in the fact that we don't want the encroachment of tyrannical governments. But that's not what libertarianism at its heart means. Libertarianism at its heart, at its heart means we don't want any government. Get rid of all government and then we'll have every right and freedom we want. But do you notice where our culture is now? We live in a culture that wants more government intrusion. We live in a culture that wants more tyranny. And yet we want more rights and freedoms. Rights for animals. Rights for homosexuals and sodomites. Rights for women to murder their unborn children. Rights and freedoms that don't come from men Freedom, ultimately, true freedom comes from God. 
But true freedom from God liberates us from the bondage of sin. True freedom from God liberates us that we might worship Him rightly. But false libertarianism, false freedom, promotes the rights and the freedom of men and not of God. Our Westminster Confession of Faith clearly distinguishes in the doctrine of the civil magistrate that there is two, not separate, but two distinct functions of the church and the state. This doctrine, and you can, it's already recorded, but this doctrine of the separation of church and state is erroneous. This understanding that we have as Americans is erroneous. There is no separation of church and state. There is separation of powers. There is separation of duties. But there's not a separation of church and state. Because under our current system of government, we say that every false religion is protected under the law. But under the understanding of our Puritan and Reformers, we understand that the church has a distinct duty as well as the civil magistrate, and there's no encroachment upon the two. But Jesus teaches us here about the wisdom of understanding the proper order of government. Remember in the life of Reverend Christopher Love, one of the early covenanters, there was a question that came up over the, over the uh, lawful rule of King Charles II. King Charles II despised Protestants. He despised truth. And he later came to supposed compromise with the Protestants to allow them to establish freedom of Protestant worship throughout Great Britain, throughout the, the three kingdoms. And so he said, okay, I'll protect the Reformed faith. But what he did later is he turned and said, no more, he's not going to protect them. So he, he rejected what he first said. And there were some that said, well, we should not give honor to him. But Christopher Love stood and said, he is our king. Just as John Knox regarded Mary, Queen of Scots, as his queen. But he worked and sought for reformation, for reform within the church and in the government, as Christians should do, particularly in a free society. And yet he suffered the consequences when he was put to death. But Jesus here teaches us that in our duty as Christians, we are to be wise in our service to both God and man. And when he says, render unto Caesar the rightful things that belong to Caesar, but render unto God the things which rightly belong to God. 
he was impressing upon them that the duty of every citizen is to obey every authority over them. That there's a duty to the magistrate and that there is a duty unto God. And they did not want to hear that. They wanted Jesus to give them a reason why they shouldn't pay their tax or their tribute. Do you realize that as Jesus handed that coin to the religious leaders, as he sees that image there, that it's later, those very, the Roman army that led him to death, Notice in verse 20, I referred to this earlier. As they sent spies to trap Jesus, they were looking for a way that they might deliver him to whom? The power and authority of the governor. And yet Jesus in calling them to submit to this king who regarded himself as a god, he says, you owe that rightful tribute Unto him. Now the text doesn't get into the restraints of that magistrate. Every magistrate is under God. And so there's limits to all human authority. There is limits to government within the church. There is limits to government within nations. Jesus doesn't deal with that. But he does establish rightful authority. As Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 13, give honor to all who are in authority. But you know what duty the church does have? To pray for those in authority, as we do every Lord's Day. We pray for our president. We pray for those who are in authority. We're not to, to seek uh, to have a posse that comes against a governor or any other magistrate. We uphold their duty as our governors. We uphold our duty to serve and honor the one who is in authority. But we learn from Jesus wisdom in how we serve God and serve man. And there are times, and this could have been an opportunity for Jesus to impose that, but they weren't looking for a rightful answer. But there are times when we must ask, what is the rightful limits of government? Can a governor require the church to close down during a pandemic or so-called pandemic? Can the sheriff who is the highest authority in a county, closed down a church? And we would say absolutely not. They don't have that authority. There are things that the magistrate does not have the authority to do. But Jesus here is recognizing lawful authority, lawful governments. And so Jesus is clear that in his wisdom... In his authority as the Son of God, he realizes that he will be betrayed and put to death by Roman authority. But he gives his allegiance to them. 
and they could not hold, take hold of his words. Here Luke tells us they could not take hold of his words. In other words, they, they, they really couldn't grasp it. They couldn't get their head around that. Oh, so we, we give our allegiance to Caesar. And some Christians would even question whether this is even a right application of this text. Because they're saying, well, he's a god. Have you looked at some of our civil magistrates lately? Some of them claim to have power as a god or as God. But as they take hold of his words, they could not fathom them. But they marveled at his answer and held their peace for a season, for a time. I'm not sure what they were marveling at. They're not marveling at his answer. They're marveling at his wisdom. They're marveling at the fact that this man, who is a teacher, who is a rabbi, who is the son of God, who has come to save sinners, they marvel. You know what? We could easily have gotten testy if somebody had put us in that situation. We could have responded in anger. Jesus, as the Son of God, who came in flesh, responded in meekness, responded in humility, responded in kindness. And here we learn the importance of wisdom in our service both to God and to man. J.C. Ryle even admits in verse 25 that there's a great difficulty in applying the principles that come from this verse. Render unto Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. Where the claims of Caesar, where the claims of Caesar end and where the claims of God begin, a meeting place there must be. And he admits and he says that there should be a boundary to the respective claims of the civil magistrate. So that Christians do not produce strife strife and division and controversy. And so the question for us this morning is when you see the wisdom of Christ... When you see the way that he handled these false leaders, not losing his cool, not responding in anger or hostility, are we willing to learn from Christ the importance of wisdom in our service to God and man? Your pastor is one who will not condone the notion that Christians should not get involved in civil government. We have every right and duty to do what we can within the civil arena. But it is not to overthrow. It is not to show rebellion and hostility. But it's to show that we as Christians want peace and order and harmony within our land. We want to serve God We must find wisdom. We learn it from Christ.
How shall we respond in a hostile world? How did Jesus respond? How should we respond? And there are many points of application that that could be further discussed, but let me close by asking again that question. Are you marveling? Do you marvel at the wisdom of Christ? Do you see the wisdom of Christ? You just like some of the people here in these accounts just oh wow that's interesting just kind of walk away or or do you stop and ponder and think what is it that even the wind and the seas obey him what is it that even demons submit to him what is it that even sick twisted bodies are made whole what is it that this man will later rise from the dead and destroy all the power of his enemies, and even on that last day, destroy the power of death. What is it that we learn about this man, Jesus? Let us find in him the wisdom that we need as Christians to follow him rightly. But let us learn from him wisdom in all of our exchanges. Christians should never show flattery. Christians should never use manipulation or control. Christians should always speak truth in love. We learn that from Jesus. If you do not know Christ, if you have not submitted to his authority, if you have not committed to him and made a public declaration of your faith, I would urge you today to look to Christ, who is the wisdom that comes from God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we do give all glory, honor, and praise unto Thee. For indeed, You are perfect wisdom. You, in the fullness of wisdom, have shown us how to deal with our enemies. And as we battle against the enemies of our age, we pray that we would remember that just as you were rejected of men and despised, so we too will be rejected and despised. But we pray that we might with joy face every trial and tribulation that with patience and humility we might rightly face all of our enemies. And we pray that thou wouldst receive glory and honor and that you would apply thy word to the hearts of all who hear it. For we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.